Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And this is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, I'm a 30 to 31. And as a reminder, Scripture Plus, you can find that on the Android store or the iOS store. It's a fabulous app full of resources that can enhance your Scripture study, help you to dig deeper, and we hope help you to feel a deeper connection to the Lord and His Gospel. We're going to begin today with a short discussion about exaltation and actually how it connects to some of the themes that show up in Alma 30 to 31. First of all, we're just going to spend some time talking about several words in English and then in Hebrew and how they show up in the scriptures and what that might mean to help us better understand uh, various, various messages in the scriptures. Let's start with the word exaltation. So I really enjoy skiing. Um, I'm not, I didn't grow up in Utah, grew up in Minnesota, absolutely lovely place. Not a lot of awesome ski mountains in Minnesota. In fact, there's a funny joke where they show Ski Minnesota, and it's a guy strapped to the back of a cow. So I love being in Utah because we have an awesome ski resort called Alta. It actually literally just means high or tall. And it's interesting, it's related to this word exaltation. And ex actually means like out of this world. So instead of just being high or tall, exaltation is far beyond. And that's really what God is offering us, to take us far beyond our present circumstances. Exaltation is to take us out of what we know into his realm, far beyond comprehension. And by the way, the word exaltation is also related to other words we use all the time in our language we often don't even think about. The word alta is related to the word elder. You can actually even hear it where the A becomes the E, the L is still there, the T and the D. The word elder actually comes from the word older. And as a missionary, people used to laugh at me like, well, you don't look very old. That's a title, of course, about spiritual wisdom, which even as a missionary, I probably could have used a bunch more wisdom. So exaltation is this idea of being older and mature and being grown up and high. Okay? How does this relate to some of the things we'll see in these chapters today? The Hebrew word ram actually means exaltation or high and lifted up. So as you're reading these chapters, and, and by the way, Tyler's going to teach you a whole bunch of other things to understand all the false doctrine that Korhor taught and how to avoid being led away by false doctrine. But you might also want to look for these particular themes going on in these chapters. So let me actually lay out some names that you probably are familiar with and show you how they connect with this theme of being high or lifted up or even exaltation. So the first name is Abram. So in the Old Testament, our ancient forefather, Abraham, his original name was Abram. And the name Ab means father. And Ram, as you know, means exalted. So his name probably means exalted father. And it's probably referencing who 
Abraham or Abram was actually worshiping, but it also tells us something about what we all can become if we follow the gospel path, that we can become exalted mothers and fathers. Well, then we have other names in the Book of Mormon like uh, Zoram, like the Zoramites. And again, you see the word Ram, which is exalted or high or lifted up. And Zoram uh, may mean he who is lifted up. And by the way, if you want more great meanings of names in the Book of Mormon, look for the scholarship of Dr. Matt Bowen from BYU-Hawaii. Really amazing scholar, and he's made a lot of uh, these discoveries. Now, what's interesting is the Zoramites, what do they do? They lift themselves up. They're prideful. They're self-exalting. Kind of interesting. In fact, how do they do that? Let me just map out these words here so we can see them better. They build a high tower. And what's the name of that high tower where they can lift themselves up? You got it. It's a Ram, high tower, Ramiumptum. Okay? So it's very interesting. In the name Ramiumptum, we actually have the Hebrew word Ram, which means to be higher lifted up. And so God wants to exalt us, but to think that we should do it on our own is a core problem. We cannot exalt ourselves. We can't. Doesn't matter how tall the tower is. The people at the Tower of Babel tried this. It just didn't work. Okay, that was the same thing. Uh, the Zoramites probably should have read their scriptures that tall towers getting yourself into heaven always end in disaster and confusion. One more name that I think is really fun is the word Hiram. Now in ancient Hebrew, this name was actually spelled slightly differently as Hiram. Notice the word exaltation or higher lifted up. And actually in Hebrew, you'd have this little word, uh, letter ah in there. And Ahiram means my brother. The word um, ah is brother and the little I in there makes it my. My brother is exalted. And I just love that Joseph Smith's brother's name is my brother's exalted. The great witness for what God did for Joseph Smith because of his faithfulness. So, call to action here is as you're looking through the scriptures, you're looking for messages for how God will exalt us and how we can avoid the, uh, the devil's trap of trying to self-exalt. And partly what we're seeing here in Alma 30 to 31 is a group of people led by a man who exalts himself and sets up an entire religion around self-exaltation. And what we learn is that that is a disaster, but it's not a disaster when we let God exalt us through his son, Jesus Christ, who truly is the exalted one. Okay, let's dive right in. This is, this is an amazing block of scripture where uh, we see some incredible truths regarding uh, the doctrine of, of Korihor, and it's interesting to see how much airtime Mormon gives to this, uh, this chief antichrist in the Book of Mormon. Now, before we dive into Korahor, look closely at Alma chapter 30, verse 4, 
and 5. Let's start there. And thus the people did have no disturbance in all the sixteenth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. And it came to pass in the commencement of the seventeenth year of the reign of the judges, there was continual peace. Now, many of us would read that and think, you know, why can't we just have every verse in the Book of Mormon be like that? that there was goodness, and there was peace, and there was righteousness, and there was hope, and everybody was happy and serving each other. Wouldn't the Book of Mormon be a lot more uplifting if that's all it had? Uh, some have wondered, why so much evil? Why, why so much from people like Korhor, this Antichrist, and why so much war in, in Alma and Helaman and Third Nephi? The question here, is what would happen if our Book of Mormon only focused on just the positive and totally ignored the negative? I want to share a little concept with you um, that uh, really quick to, to prove this point of why we have so much badness in the Book of Mormon. There is a there's an educational philosophy out there. Taylor has talked about this in a previous episode. The idea that we as learners don't fully grasp a concept if all we ever see are the positive examples of that concept. In order to truly understand it, you have to see and be able to distinguish the difference between the positive and the negative examples. So let me demonstrate. Totally made-up concept. You can't find this if you Google it or anything. It, it doesn't exist, so it's just made-up concept to teach this principle. We'll call it the the concept of zot. Okay, I'm going to show you um, multiple examples of what zot is. Okay, you ready? Here we go, really fast. This is zot. 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 This is Zot, 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 and let me get these off. This is Zot. There. I just showed you, I don't know, a dozen or so examples of what Zot is. And my guess is that you're sitting there really confused, wondering what in the world I just did because it, it made no sense, and quite frankly, you have very little idea of what Zot really is. Now watch what happens when you see what Zot is not. This is Zot. That is not Zot. This is Zot, but this is not Zot. This is clearly not Zot. This is Zot. Oh, no, it isn't. It's not Zot. You get the idea. That Zot is any writing, any marking on the board that doesn't touch the borders. It only took two or three non-examples for all of the positive examples to all of a sudden make more sense. If our Book of Mormon only had Nephi and Abinadi and King Benjamin and Samuel and Alma, but we didn't have all of the stories involving Laman and Lemuel and King Noah and Amalickiah and Korahor and Nehor and Sherem, 
our understanding of faith, of goodness, of hope, of obedience, of covenant path discipleship, of connection with the Lord, it would be greatly limited. The fact that the doctrines of the gospel, the Lord chose to give them to us in a story form and in these speeches and in these interactions where he, he's giving both the good and the bad <clears throat> right next to each other, it enhances our understanding of both and we can more clearly understand those doctrines. Now, without foundation, let's dive into Korhor's doctrine because when we understand Korhor's doctrine, we understand the person who inspired Korhor to teach that doctrine and understanding where the devil's doctrine is coming from and what it's trying to do, then I believe from my own experience that it then enhances our ability to understand better the true doctrines that are coming to us from the Lord Jesus Christ as we move forward on that covenant path in the faith. So we pick up verse 4 and 5 again, there was all this continual peace and it doesn't just keep going because then there's verse 6, but it came to pass in the latter end of the seventeenth year they, there came a man into the land of Zarahemla and he was antichrist. So here they are, peace and prosperity and it doesn't get to just keep going as peace and prosperity. Here comes some major opposition in the form of a man who is Antichrist. So Korahor comes along and we are going to play a little game with Korahor. We're going to play dominoes and by the way, for any of you who have ever spent any time setting up dominoes and then knocking them down, you understand the reality that it takes a lot longer to establish and to set up dominoes than it does to knock them down so it is with faith. You can spend a, a lifetime building up faith and if you, if you choose uh, to do things that, that are inappropriate or unwise, you can knock down years of building efforts in a very short period of time when it comes to faith and testimony and conversion. So Korahor comes along and these prophets and these people have been spending this time trying to establish some dominoes of faith and he's going to start knocking them down. Now watch closely at what the first domino is that Korahor attacks. Look at verse 12. This Antichrist, whose name was Korahor, and the law could have no hold upon him, began to preach unto the people that there should be no Christ. Notice that the first domino he's going to attack is there will be no Christ. Now, if you knock over that domino, it's going to knock down a whole series of dominoes downstream. If there's really no Christ, look what follows. Verse 13, O ye that are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope. That's his way of saying there is no such thing as true hope. You have no hope, and the hope that you think you have, it's foolish and it's vain. It's, it's a total waste of your time. There is no hope. Look at verse 13's conclusion. Why do you look for a Christ 
for no man can know of anything which is to come. There is no such thing as prophecy. You can't know what's coming in the future. By the way, you'll notice that with uh, Sherem did this as well back in uh, Jacob chapter 7, they say no man can know anything which is to come in the future, and then they turn right around and say, now let me tell you what isn't going to be in the future. There is not going to be a Christ anywhere in the future. The, the contradiction, the logical fallacy there is quite remarkable, but sometimes we miss that, the fact that uh, they're telling you you can't know the future, but then they're telling you the future. There is no Christ in the future for him. Look at verse 14. Behold, these things which ye call prophecies, which ye say are handed down by the holy prophets, behold, they are the foolish traditions of your fathers. There's no such thing as past wisdom to be gained from the prophets in the past. Anything that they pass down that they claim to be pro it's all foolishness. It's just a tradition of your fathers. There is nothing to be gained from the past. Hmm. That's interesting. Here we stand, okay, here we stand in the present, and what does Korahor in essence do? I learned this from, from a dear friend and, a, and an amazing mentor, Brother Rex Reeve. He showed this to me, that Korahor, or the devil, is doing everything he can to cut us completely off from the past and to blind us and cut us off from the future, leaving us with me here now. When Satan can, can help us or, or cause us to be cut off from the past and the future, the ability that he has to tempt us in such a way that we fall, it, it, the, the odds go through the roof and that's exactly what's happening here. Now, before I go any further down the domino line, before we play any more of this domino game with Korahor, I need to stop and make something very clear here. It's not just that Korahor is teaching these doctrines to try to get people convinced to go out and, and sin. There's something, there's a reason why I think, I believe, that God inspired Mormon to put so much of, of Korahor's doctrine in here. There's a lot. He, he opened up the playbook of the devil here right before our very eyes in Alma chapter 30 as well as anywhere I know in all of scripture. You're getting a glimpse into doctrines of devils and what they teach. But even more than that, I believe the Lord inspired this because what's happening here is the Lord is revealing what it's like for people that follow the devil in the pre-mortal council and for sons of perdition someday. In other words, is there a group of people who have no Christ? Is there a group of people who really do have no hope, who have no spirit of prophecy and who don't benefit at all from any past wisdom? And the answer is yes, there are people, they, they live in hell with the devil. What Korahor is doing 
is he's revealing on a silver platter to you exactly what it would be like to be a devil. You have no claim on a Christ, and because you have no claim on Christ, you have none of these things. And the Book of Mormon taught us earlier on, misery likes company, in essence. He seeks that all may be miserable like unto himself. So if you want the true definitions of misery, you just keep playing this game with Korihor and watch these dominoes fall. So go to verse 15. How do you know of their surety? Behold, you cannot know of things which you do not see, therefore you cannot know that there shall be a Christ. You can't know that which you can't see. There's no such thing as faith in, in believing until you can see something. Verse 16, you look forward and say that you see a remission of your sins. That's the effect of a frenzied mind. There's no such thing as forgiveness. Look at 17. Many more such things did he say unto them, telling them that there could be no atonement made for the sins of men, but every man fared in this life according to the management of the creature. Therefore every man prospered according to his genius, and that every man conquered according to his strength. And whatsoever a man did was no crime. You noticing this? He is attacking every core doctrine that you can imagine. There is no atonement. There's no need for it even because why? There's no crime. Remember Satan's plan in the beginning? I will save all of them, I will lose none of them. I, I, you can see echoes of that coming through Korihor's doctrine here. Uh, look at verse 18. Thus he did preach unto them, leading away the hearts of many, causing them to lift up their heads in their wickedness, to glory in their wickedness, basically. Yea, leading away many women and also men to commit whoredoms, telling them that when a man was dead, that was the end thereof. There is no life after death and after, after this life. It's done. So just live it up enjoy what you've got, take advantage of it. Uh, these dominoes, they fall in succession, but brothers and sisters, it's really critical to note again to come back to the beginning. It's all rooted in Jesus Christ because quite frankly and very honestly, if you take Jesus Christ out of the picture, what Korihor taught is accurate. If there is no Christ, then you and I have no hope for any of these things that are, that are the remaining dominoes. And so you'll notice that prophets, both ancient and modern, their, their number one goal is to testify of Jesus Christ and to get us to believe in Christ and to come unto Christ and be perfected in him because once you put him in place, all of these other dominoes can be set up. So the contrast in the Book of Mormon, that zot, not zot idea, here we're getting not zot, but the whole all, – all of the prophets in the Book of Mormon are trying to teach us the opposite, which is the positive side, which is to come to know Christ. 
And when we come to know Christ, when we really know him, then we will really know hope. And then we will really know about prophecy and know about the past wisdom and gain more from it and so on and so forth down the line of the dominoes until we come to the knowing all about the atonement because we've experienced the Savior's infinite mercy and power and grace in our own life and in the life of our families. So before we move forward into the rest of Korhor's story, we need to make this very clear that this isn't just about an antichrist. This is simply revealing the doctrine of devils and the, the attributes of devils so that we can better understand what's going on when prophets stand up and preach the truth and we can then make better sense when we find ourselves in the moments of temptation realizing who it is that's really tempting us and what he's trying to do and what's happening with us. Now, moving on. Look at verse uh, 20. He goes to the people of in the land of Jershon, the, the people that Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni and their, their companions had taught of the Lamanites. They didn't, they didn't buy his doctrine. They kicked him out. He went to Gideon. They, they don't really buy his doctrine. And then they take him to, uh, to the high priest over all the land. The, the, the story gets really, really fun when, he fi- when we find this, this interesting scenario between Alma the Younger and Korahor. Here's the reality. Alma the Younger, of all of our Book of Mormon prophets, I can't think of a better person to have in this interaction with Korahor because of Alma the Younger's past. Alma the Younger knows what teaching this doctrine is like because he spent some of his lifetime doing it when he was younger. And he knows very well where Korahor is coming from, but Korahor doesn't have a clue about where Alma's coming from. And that's the reality of, of good and evil. Um, good, goodness, knows an awful lot about goodness and badness, but badness doesn't know very much about either one. That's a C.S. Lewis concept, and I, I like that. So, before we before we now go into the interaction between Alma and Korahor, I want to point, point out something else here. Korahor is teaching these doctrines. Our other antichrists in the Book of Mormon, so we have Sherem, he's back in, uh, in Jacob chapter 7. Sherem's doctrine is also antichrist, but he says that God lives, he doesn't believe in a God, at least at this point, hold that thought, we'll get to it later, he says, Sherm says that the law of Moses will save you, and he is really frustrated because the people are going after worshiping this, this Christ that will come, and he says, you can't know the future and there is no Christ, that's how you're saved, keep the law of Moses, the law will save you. So, his Antichrist doctrine is very different, totally different flavor from Korahor's. Then you get Nehor in Alma chapter 1, and his doctrine is different as well. In fact, we've mentioned it before, he never even mentions Christ, but we call him Antichrist because he says that God doesn't just live, but God 
will save all. He will save everyone, and it doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do, you're going to be saved. So can you see that if you were to put Korhor, Sherem, and Nehor on a, on a debate stage, they would not agree with each other. Now, they would agree on certain points, but they, across the board, are coming from totally different extreme angles, but they're all inspired by the same guy. That's probably why we call it Doctrines of Devils and we call it the doctrine of Christ, because he doesn't change his doctrine. Now, we change prince, or practices in the church and policies and procedures, but the doctrine doesn't change. The doctrine of Christ is there is none other way nor means whereby we can be saved only in and through the coming of the Son of God, because God sent him into the world to suffer the infinite atonement for us, and then we keep the laws and ordinances and the principles of his gospel in order to continually accept and access his grace. That's, there's only one path, there's only one doctrine that's going to save us or exalt us. In this case, there are three major variations and extremes on ways to sink our souls into, into any state other than salvation. So, as we move forward, recognize Satan doesn't care which doctrine you fall for. He just doesn't want you to follow the doctrine of Christ. He wants you to fall for one of his tactics, and he's got many. This is just three of many ways that Satan will try to destroy us. So, now he, he comes in front of Alma and the, the showdown begins in verse 31. Notice he did rise up in great swelling words before Alma and did revile against the priests and the teachers, accusing them of leading away the people after the silly traditions of their fathers for the sake of glutting on the labors of the people. So interesting that a, that a person inspired by the devil would throw that accusation. The being who doesn't want to do any work but wants all of the benefit that's Satan. He wasn't willing to sacrifice his life for us like Jesus was, but he wanted us to do all the work and him to get all the glory and all of the benefit. The irony is thick. The conversation goes on in this initial phase. Now look at verse 39. Now Alma said unto him, Will you deny again that there is a God, and also deny the Christ? For behold, I say unto you, I know there is a God, and also that Christ shall come. So he bears his testimony very firmly, very resolutely uh, to, to Korihor here. And then verse 40 is beautiful. Now what evidence have ye that there is no God, or that Christ cometh not? I say unto you that ye have none, save it be your word only. But it's interesting that in this case Korihor is laying the burden of proof at the feet of Alma, saying, basically prove it, and we're going to see that here in a minute. You can't prove that there isn't a God. In fact, it was uh, Elder Gerald Lund years and years ago in an Enzyme article who talked about this. He said, in order to prove that there isn't a God, you would have to be able to go into all parts of the vast universe looking for him and find no evidence of, of divinity. 
And then he said, the only problem is, is by the time you get through looking through all parts of the universe, God could have moved. So he said, to really prove that there is no God, what you have to do is have your mind be able to contemplate every square inch of the – or cubic inch of the vast expanse of the universe in an instant, and only a God can do that. Brothers and sisters, the existence of God is not intended to be something proved by scientific inquiry or by, by scientific evidence. It's a matter of faith, and I love the fact that here Alma is saying – look at verse 41 – behold, I have all things as a testimony that these things are true, and ye also have all things as a testimony unto you that they are true, and will you deny them? He's saying, look, everywhere I look, I'm seeing signs of a God, and you're seeing signs of a non, non-existence of a God, but you can't prove it, nor can I prove to you, but I can bear my testimony to you and I can, I can explain the witnesses that I've seen. At this point, Korahor shifts the discussion. Look at verse 43. Now Korahor said unto Alma, if thou wilt show unto me a sign, that I may be convinced that there is a God, yea, show unto me that he hath power, and then will I be convinced of the truth of thy words. Alma, let's make this really simple. Show me a sign. Prove it. Prove that God lives. Then I'll believe. Let me see it. Then I'll believe it. That, that whole doctrine or that, that foundation of seeking truth is a wonderful one when it comes to scientific inquiry, when it comes to things of the earth, physical laws, that is wonderful to to use that scientific method of, I've got to see it, then I'll believe it. I I personally don't want to get onto an airplane of somebody who has just fasted and prayed but has no scientific experimentation or built on laws of nature and, and lots of tests and trials and errors to discover how to best make an airplane. I, I don't want to get on an airplane built by faith alone. In, I just don't. So the let me see it, then believe it is a wonderful way to seek truth when it comes to things of the physical, natural world in which we live, but it's not a good way to seek truth with things of eternity. The Book of Mormon later on is going to teach us that we receive no witness until after the trial of our faith, which means we have to believe first and then see second. It's only after the trial that we get the witness. So now watch what happens with this sign-seeking. If you'll show me a sign, then I'll believe. It was Jesus who taught the doctrine that it is a wicked and an adulterous generation that seeketh after signs. Joseph Smith repeated that doctrine once when he said sign-seekers are adulterers, basically, is the concept that he taught. Uh, That's odd. What what does sign-seeking and adultery have in common that would make them so connected in the mind of the Savior that he would teach that? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after signs. Think about what an adulterer uh, wants and what they're willing to do. An adulterer is not willing to work and to pay the price 
to go through a long phase of, of dating and courtship and engagement and marriage in order to enjoy those particular aspects of, of married life. They don't want to go to all the work, they just want what they want right here, right now, and they don't care what it costs because they just – they want that, that passion or that desire fed in the immediate present. What is sign-seeking? I don't want to have to go to the work of reading my scriptures and praying and fasting and going to church and serving and paying tithing and struggling to gain a testimony of these things. I just – I want what I want and I want it right now, but I don't want to have to work for it. So just show me a sign, let's cut to the chase, let me just see what I want to see, and then I'll believe at that point. Done. It didn't cost me anything, I didn't have to put anything into this, but I get all of the benefit with none of the pain or none of the labor leading up to it. Notice that uh, Alma tells him, you've had signs enough, verse 44, and he, he continues to press Korahor on this saying, you, you know more, you know better, and are you going to keep denying? You're going to do this? Look at verse 48. Now Korahor said unto him, I do not deny the existence of a God, but I do not believe that there is a God, and I say also that you do not know that there is a God, and except ye show me a sign, I will not believe. Hmm, that's odd. Our chief atheist in the Book of Mormon, who, who didn't believe in the existence of God and the existence of Christ, he doesn't really say that as much, but everything he's talking about, there's no life after this life, there's nothing to be gained from the past, everything he's describing is godless, it's atheistic. But now, in verse 48, he shifts and he becomes fully agnostic, an agnostic saying, I don't know and I don't think you know and I don't think anyone can know. Well, watch this. Look at verse 49. Alma said unto him, this will I give unto thee for a sign, thou shalt be struck dumb according to my words. And I say that in the name of God ye shall be struck dumb, that ye shall no more have utterance. And at that point, Korahor is struck dumb. He can't speak anymore. So look at verse 52. First thing he writes, Korahor put forth his hand and wrote, saying, I know that I am dumb, for I cannot speak. And I know He's bearing testimony now as he writes this, I know that nothing save it were the power of God could bring this upon me, yea, and I always knew that there was a God. I always knew that there is a God. Turns out he's a theist all along, the entire – I always knew. So your question for Korahor at this point would be, uh, really? Then why did you do what you did? Why did you teach what you taught? He answers it before we even ask the question. Look at verse 53. But behold, the devil hath deceived me, for he appeared unto me in the form of an angel and said unto me, Go and reclaim this people, for they have all gone astray after an unknown God. And he said unto me, There is no God. Now at that point, pause. You would want Korahor to ask a few questions of that angel, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want him to say something like, really? If there's no God, then where did you come from? Who sent you? And why did you 
care to come. And if there really is no God, then what difference does it make what anybody believes, really? At the end of the day, nothing matters. And why, why do you care so much, angel, if there is no God? But Korahor didn't ask any of those questions. Look what he says. I taught his words, and I taught them because they were pleasing unto the carnal mind, and I taught them even until I had much success, insomuch that I verily believed they were true. Because they pleased the carnal mind, and so many people seemed to follow and believe them true as well, I believed that they were true. And so then, you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, if you show me a sign, then I will uh, be able to believe. So now he's had his sign, now he should be able to believe, right? But his, in, his uh, declaration was, I've always believed. I didn't need Elma to show me a sign to believe in God, because I always knew there was a God. I've just been teaching these things because they were so pleasing and so many people liked them. But that was a good, good lesson for me. I, I've learned it. Now let's move on. I'm, I'm ready to, to be a good guy now. Look at verse 54. Now when he had said this, he besought that Elma should pray unto God that the curse might be taken from him. Brothers and sisters, verse 54, for me, is one of the saddest verses in this entire chapter because what it tells me is that nothing has changed. Korahor hasn't really changed. He just doesn't like the consequence that he's now experiencing, but his heart is no different than it was before because he's doing the same thing as he was before. He's turning to somebody else to do all of the work for him so that he can get the rewards and the fruits and the benefits of that labor. I don't know. I have no authority for these things, but I believe with all my heart that if verse 54 had said, and it came to pass that Korahor fell to the ground and he poured out his whole soul and his heart to God, pleading for a remission of his sins and his iniquities and for all that he had done to lead away so many hearts away from Christ, pleading to know what God would have him to do to, to be forgiven of these sins, I think we would have had a different ending to the story. I think we would have seen a changed heart turning to God asking for, for direction on what God would have him do and he would be willing to do it meekly. And then I think the next verse might have said, and it came to pass that Korahor was passed out for three days, because that seems to always be the pattern when people are making this kind of a transition. But we don't see that, because Korahor's heart doesn't seem to have changed. He's turning to Alma saying, you take this away from me, because I've learned my lesson. I'm a, I'm a good boy now. Look at verse 55. But Alma said unto him, if this curse should be taken from thee, thou wouldst again lead away the hearts of this people. Therefore, it shall be unto thee even as the Lord wilt." So he, he's saying, look, I'm not going to take it away but if, because I think you're going to keep leading people astray, but if God wants to take it away, I'll let him. God doesn't. Now Korahor goes down among the Zoramites in, uh, in Antionum. This is the one place among the Nephites where people should have embraced him and, and celebrated him. But notice what happened. Bottom of verse 58, Korahor did go about from house to house begging food 
for his support. His doctrine isn't going very well now. He told us before that every man prospers according to his genius. It's every dog for himself, right? Well, now it's not going very well for him as he's begging. And it came to pass that as he went forth among the people, yea, among a people who had separated themselves from the Nephites, called themselves Zoramites, being led by a man whose name was Zoram, and as he went forth amongst them, behold, he was run upon and trodden down even until he was dead. Mormon couldn't hold himself back. He has to jump in and say, did, did you get it? Did you see the message? Look at this. It comes to us in two thus we sees in verse 60. Thus we see the end of him who perverteth the ways of the Lord, and thus we see that the devil will not support his children at the last day, but doth speedily drag them down to hell. You'll notice a little contrast on your scripture page there if you have your physical scriptures open. You could circle the word drag because that's what Satan does. He drags people down to hell. Look at the contrast uh, over in chapter 31, verse 5, just right next to it on the page. Now, as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just. Contrast zot with not zot. Contrast good with evil. Christ with Satan. Satan drags, Christ leads. He will never force anyone into heaven. He will never reach into your heart and squeeze you and say, you will love me. That is not his way. He will lead you with kindness, gentleness, meekness, persuasion, love unfeigned, all of those beautiful things in section 121 that he describes. That's how God does his work. Now, as we say farewell to Korahor, and turn our attention to chapter 31 with the Zoramites, just know that his doctrine is appealing. There is a part of our being that would very much like to have his doctrine be true if we let it go. But brothers and sisters, there is no happiness in following that, that doctrine or allowing those dominoes to keep to keep falling and thinking we're going to somehow find lasting or enduring joy, it doesn't exist. That will only lead us to be bound more and more and more with more flax and cords from the devil, allowing him to drag us more and more against our will versus turning to the Lord, saying, I want thee to be my God and I want to be thy people and moving forward in faith. Now, we shift our attention to chapter 31. Uh, after the Korahor incident, Alma is really concerned because down there, if you, if you look at the, the map of the land northward in Zarahemla, you have the capital in the center of the land. It always talks about it, the capital city. That's where this event with Korahor probably happened. And Antionum is clear down here on the, the bottom right-hand side. It's one of the few entry points between the Lamanites and the Nephite lands over here in Antionum. The Zoramites have separated themselves from the Nephites, and Alma is very, very concerned, and you can see strategically on the map why that would be a concern for him. He does not want the Zoramites becoming friendly with the Lamanites because then you've got that, that flank opened up for the enemy to be able to get into your lands. So he decides to take a group of missionaries 
uh, perhaps called the dream team of missionaries, to go down there and teach these people. Why? Look closely at 31 verse 5. Now as the preaching of the word had a great tendency, you'll notice he's had some experiences in other cities and he realizes it doesn't always work, but it has a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just. Yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God or the power of the word of God. He's saying, let's go and teach. So he takes this dream team with him described in verse 6, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Amulek, and Zeezrom. Don't you love the fact that Zeezrom is on the team with the missionaries now? This, this lawyer from Ammonihah who, who had previously been trying to destroy them? I love that. Then he also takes uh, – he doesn't take Helaman, but he took with him Shiblon and Corianton, and we go on this mission down here to the Zoramites. Now when we get there, there's this fascinating thing that they discover. The Zoramites have built synagogues, and they're worshiping on the Sabbath day, and he's like, oh, maybe we're good. So they go into the synagogue with them to see what they're doing. Lo and behold, they've built some very, very interesting structures inside of uh, an interesting structure inside of the synagogue. Uh, Taylor's speaking about this, this whole symbolism of the ram yumptum and what it means. Now look closely at the wording of the prayer offered on top of the ram yumptum and you tell me in your mind uh, who inspired this prayer or to whom are they really praying, whether they know it or not. Look at verse 15. Holy, holy God, we believe that thou art God, and we believe that thou art holy, and that thou wast a spirit, and that thou art a spirit, and that thou wilt be a spirit forever. Hmm. Who fits that description? And if you're thinking through all the words literally, you're saying, well, nobody does. There's no holy, holy God who has been a spirit, is a spirit, and will be a spirit forever. The reality is that Satan is really, really good at identity theft, so he's taken attributes of God's holiness and he's declaring that for himself, but his identity is, I've always been a spirit, always will be a spirit, there's no hope for a body for him in the future, and look at verse 16. Holy God, we believe that thou hast separated us from our brethren, and we do not believe the tradition of our brethren which was handed down to them by the childishness of their fathers, but we believe that thou hast elected us to be thy holy children, and also thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. Sounds a lot like Korahor's doctrine now coming through. You've elected us to be your holy children and there will be no Christ. Look at verse 17. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see how he's stealing attributes of God? Thou hast elected us that we shall be saved, whilst all around us are elected to be cast by thy wrath down to hell, for which holiness we thank thee that thou hast elected us. What does their salvation cost them? What faith, what trust, what hope do they have to have? You'll notice after they finish the prayer and get off the ramiumptum in verse 21, they, they go home and they never think about or talk about God until the following week when they get back up on the ramiumptum. 
their covenant, their discipleship costs them nothing. Their salvation is given to them, but everybody around them is not going to be saved. That sounds very similar to the devil's doctrine up in heaven. sounds very similar uh, in ways to Nehor's doctrine. We know these guys are after the order of the Nehor's as well. So, the, the finishing of this is in verse 24. Now, when Alma saw this, his heart was grieved, for he saw that they were a wicked and a perverse people. Yea, and he saw that their hearts were set upon gold and upon silver and upon all manner of fine goods. But if you were to interview any one of them walking out of the synagogue on a given Sabbath day and say, how are you doing uh, on the righteousness scale, they'd be saying, I'm good, I'm going to be saved, I'm great. But here's a prophet of God saying, oh no, we have our work cut out for us. Now, you have an apostate prayer on page 286, this Zoramite uh, Ram prayer. So isn't it interesting that Mormon would choose to give us Alma's prophetic prayer on the very next page. You get a prayer to the devil with, with deceptive identity theft going on, and then you get a prophet's true prayer, and you see pleading, and you see what it costs him, and what he's willing to put on the altar in this work. Look at the, look at the phrasing here, verse 26. He lifted up his voice to heaven and he cried, saying, Oh, how long, O Lord, wilt thou suffer that thy servant shall dwell here below in the flesh to behold such gross wickedness among the children of men? Behold, O God, they cry unto thee. And he goes on and on and on. Now look towards the end, 32. O Lord, wilt thou comfort my soul and give unto me success and also my fellow laborers who are with me? Yea, wilt thou comfort their souls in Christ? There at the end of the verse. Why? He's asking for comfort so that they can be an instrument in the hands of the Lord to establish those correct dominoes again for the people, to put things back in place for the Zoramites to be able to believe and to understand. And at the end, notice verse 36, it came to pass that when Alma had said these words that he clapped his hands upon all them who were with him, and behold, as he clapped his hands upon them, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, as we come to the, uh, to the end of this, next week's lesson, we're going to get into chapters 32, 33, 34, which are the, the teachings of Alma and Amulek and Zezerim and these other missionaries among the Zoramites and uh, where they have success and where they don't have success. In closing, brothers and sisters, nothing that we've spent time talking about today, and I mean nothing that we've talked about today, matters at all if there isn't a Christ and if there isn't a God. But I'm here to tell you, everything we've talked about today does matter because there is a God and there is a Christ and there is his infinite atonement and there is past wisdom to be gained from the scriptures and from our ancestors and those who have gone before and from our own lives in the past. There's great power in that and there's great power in looking to the future and there's great power in believing in things which we can't yet see and in strengthening our faith to the point where we have deep trust in God to move forward based on what we do know on the covenant path, following Christ 
back to, uh, to that place where he intends us to, to go, which is into the presence of our, of our loving heavenly parents. So in closing, know that God lives, know that Jesus is the Christ, and know that you're loved. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.